Welcome to the Becoming a Star podcast presented by the Rising Star Sports Group. We're proud to bring in Kirk Ludicky. He is the Director of Hockey Operations and Assistant General Manager for the USHL's Omaha Lancers. Before, spent a long time serving our country's military, so we thank you for that. Kirk, welcome in. Thanks, Nick. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I thank you uh, for the opportunity. I thank you for what you're doing with uh, Rising Stars, and I certainly thank the Omaha Lancers for allowing me to be a part of this. Absolutely. So tell us, I know you played hockey growing up a little bit uh, as a goalie. You had a very long, successful military career. How did you end up back in hockey and ultimately in Omaha? Uh, in one word, the internet. Um, so when I was growing up, getting into hockey required you to be uh, a successful player at a high level, which I was not. And, uh, and if you weren't a successful player at a high level talking, you know, whether you were a D1 college player or a minor pro or, or in the NHL, um, you needed to know somebody. And so uh, once I figured out I wasn't going to be a pro hockey player uh, pretty early on in my development, uh, I switched gears and I was uh, commissioned through ROTC and uh, was in the Army and then the Internet uh, exploded. And I started, I just loved hockey and I was blogging about it. And one thing led to another. And before long, I had a job uh, on the media side covering the Boston Bruins uh, without a single minute of journalistic training or uh, classes. And uh, in covering the Boston Bruins, I always had more of an interest in the future of the team, uh, the draft, the prospects, the guys that were down in the, the American Hockey League and in the junior leagues and in college, uh, the guys that were coming up through the ranks. And I was particularly interested in evaluating their abilities to kind of gauge to see whether they actually make it to the show. And uh, through that and my writings and my coverage of the, of the NHL draft through the years with the New England Hockey Journal, uh, NHL guys that I would interview and talk to, we'd have discussions about the, the players and they were like, man, you know, you you're not your typical hockey writer or journalist. You actually know a little something about the game. Have you ever thought of getting into scouting? And uh, one thing led to another. I ended up on the Redline Report staff. And this is all while I was in the Army. Um, it was a simultaneous thing. So it was kind of a hobby and a thing I did on the side. I did my Army job, and then I was usually writing articles late at night uh, while the kids were asleep and uh, getting out and covering events when I could. And luckily, I would try to time my assignments with hockey areas. I would try to work with my assignments manager to put me in an area of the country where I could go see some high-level hockey, and that was what was cool. What allowed me, as long as I was near an NHL city, I had an NHL credential. If I was in the northeast part of the country, I could get to a lot of games at the lower levels, college and prep and things like that. So built a reputation that way and then uh, worked for a couple of junior teams and was very fortunate when uh, – when uh, Coots to Caesar and uh, David Wilkie, of course, uh, gave me the opportunity I have to work for the Omaha Lancers and now entering my fourth season as a AGM director of hockey ops. That's awesome. I've got to know you pretty well over the last three years. You are a really level-headed, never get too high, never get too low type of person. What did you learn from your military career that helps you now in your hockey career? I think organization and organizational discipline are the, the big things. I mean, when you're in the military, uh, there's just a lot of different uh, – you have to be a multitasker. There's a lot of different things going on. And, 
Uh, one of the great things that the military teaches you, especially when you're an officer and you're a leader, is uh, you have to have to have a plan for everything. Uh, you can't just wing it. Um, when lives are on the line and training and, and, and deployments and, and even day-to-day -day things, like even if you're what we call in garrison and you're not in the field, actually, I was on tanks. I was, a, I was an armor officer and I was in the cavalry and that was a lot of fun. And I always said, you know, if you're going to be in the army, be in the army and do something you can't do on the outside. So, um, but when you're, when you're deploying tanks to the field, it's a tremendous logistical challenge. Uh, to get a tank out of the motor pool and out into the training area and be out there for several weeks. And we're talking the fuel, the bullets, uh, the food, um, all the maintenance that goes into things like that. And so as a leader, you're required to not only manage your troops. I was a, I was a tank platoon leader, a company commander. Uh, and so it's different levels of responsibility. As long as you're in command, you know, you're going from 16 to, to about 100 to and then you're in the several hundreds and then the thousands. I have a friend that just came out of brigade command in Fort Lewis, Washington, who was a, you know, we were lieutenants together and he's going to be a future general. Um, but he just gave up command of a, of a unit that had 4,500 soldiers. So at every level in the military, what you learn is, is, is how to be organized, uh, how to plan things, how to be deliberate in your planning and how to solve problems. That's probably the biggest thing. I mean, you're put in stressful situations and, you know, whether you're in combat or you're trying to figure out how to roll your, you know, you have 160 vehicles in your in your uh, headquarters company uh, that all have to get out to the field on a certain day, yet they all have to go through a certification process through maintenance checks and services to make sure they're, they're dispatched and allowed to go to the field. And, and man, I tell you what, some of the more stressful situations in my career were not when I was in Baghdad being shot at, but when I was in Fort Riley, Kansas, trying to get all 160 trucks out of the motor pool on time. Because uh, if you miss your uh, line of departure, scheduled movement, um, you know, your superiors are not going to be happy. And in some, in some ways, uh, that was more stressful. And, and that fear of failing to just get out on an administrative movement uh, was far worse than what we were dealing with when you're in the adrenaline of of combat and the potential, you know, dealing with roadside bombs and snipers and things like that. As crazy as that may sound, um, that's reality. Well, again, we thank you for your service, certainly. Um, you know, you mentioned your primary job being to, and, and going back, covering the Boston Bruins, identifying talent. I think just about everyone can see why Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby, Carey Price, players like that are the best in the league and considered generational talents. But a lot of times there are small differences that set players apart from one another. A lot of times it's some of the intangible stuff. What are some of those things you look for in a player on and off the ice that sets them apart from one another? Well, on the ice, I think it's uh, – uh, first of all, that's a great question, right? Because that's, that's really it. I mean. Um, one of, the, one of the things that's really been interesting in, in, in the, I started covering the NHL in 1999. So I've had you know, like 20, you know, I had 21 years of basically writing about it and covering it. And what, what you noticed was back then um, there was a delineated pecking order of players in terms of their skills and their skating ability. Like when you went to the rinks, you'd sit there and you could say, oh, you know, there was only a, a handful of guys that you would look at right away and say, oh, man, that guy even has a chance to play pro hockey. You know, whether, and we're not even talking NHL. We're talking NHL or AHL or even ECHL. You would look at, you know, you'd look at a team and there weren't many. And there were some guys you would just look and say, eh, you know, not going to get there. Couldn't skate well enough. Skills were lacking. 
so on and so forth. What has happened in those intervening years is our society is getting bigger. Um, ice is available year round. So the players are bigger. Uh, players have more access to ice than ever before. Like when I was growing up, it was, it was a much more uh, rare commodity. And so skating year round wasn't an option for a lot of us. So, so um, the skaters are better. Uh, they have more skills cause they're, uh, they're able to, there are more skills coaches out there that are available. They're able to train the, the players. And as a result, um, there are more skilled players that have the ability and you look, you go on the ice and you watch and you say, Hey, that guy could play pro hockey. And, and the percentage is larger, um, because there isn't as much of a gap between the halves in terms of skating ability and skill and ability to play the game that just stands out to you in your, your first 10 minutes of watching a game versus now where quite a few guys can skate, you know, like, like the exception to the rule is the guy that can't skate at all. And, you know, is wobbling around and you know, or he's a D and he looks like the old, you know, traffic cone getting walked. Like you don't see those guys that often anymore, you know, they're out there, but it used to be, there were a lot more of them. And so what you have to do now is, okay, you establish that the guy can skate and he can handle the puck and he can do this, he can do that. Then you start looking at their details and the habits of their game. You know, how are they playing the game? You know, are they, are they skating between the dots or are they outside the dots? You know, do they, do they stop on pucks or change directions quickly? Or do they do those nice lazy circle turns that, uh, you know, work, are, are easier to perform, but, but ultimately put you out of position on play? Do they stop at the net? You know, are they above pucks and, you know, in the D zone? Are they in puck support? You know, all these things that, you know, really get to the heart of the matter of separating players at the levels as you go higher and higher and the pyramid narrows where you have more players at the lower levels and they get there are fewer and fewer that can 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 progress and climb the ladder in their development what will differentiate a guy who's really skilled uh from another guy who's really skilled is whether the one guy uh actually understands the game uh knows how to play in structure uh, competes hard, I and mean, that's another sign. You're always looking for the guys that can really compete, move their feet, play hard, are physical, finish their checks. Uh, if they if they make a mistake or or they they miss it, they miss a check or they they make a bad pass and turn it over. You know, are they hustling to get back into the play? Um, all those things add up, and the guys that have more of that versus the other guys are the ones that are ultimately gonna gonna get the top and then off the ice it's you know a lot of times it's just about personality and character and how these guys carry themselves so they they carry themselves in a, in a professional manner and respectful and you know are they serious you know so many so many players are serious and dedicated and committed then commitment is a big word you know if you're gonna play any sport at a high high level you have to be committed there are very few very few uh, people in the world that can just coast through life at anything uh, and not put work into it, right? And so um, talent is one thing, but you talked about Sidney Crosby. Um, Sidney Crosby is one of the most talented players in the world, uh, but what sets him apart too and makes him extra special is that he works at it and he always has. And he has that un unbelievable work ethic. Same, same with Connor McDavid. And the best of the best all kind of, I think, bring that common denominator of work ethic and professionalism and commitment and dedication um, because that's what allows them to get the most out of their talent. There are some players that are talented, but they're never going to be those league MVPs and superstars. They're talented enough to be those players, but they don't work as hard at it. And so uh, they have a, they have a ceiling that's eventually going to cap them and prevent them from getting the most out of their talent. And that's what makes someone like 
Crosby so special is that he's an unbelievable talent, but he's also an unbelievable worker. And when the hardest worker is the best player on your team, good things are going to follow. Absolutely. That's a good way of putting it. So I get asked this question all the time, especially when I was working for the Lancers, but a lot of people, even in the hockey world, don't really quite understand how everything works. So I wanted to ask you as the USHL drafts approach, can you talk a little bit about how the draft works, where players are coming from, how you have prepared the entire year for the draft and ultimately what draft day looks like? That's a great question. Uh, yeah. So uh, the USHL had, you said it correctly. You saw, you talked about two uh, drafts, plural um, on Monday, uh, May 4th, Fourth, yeah, May fourth, we're going to do the futures draft of the two thousand fours only. Uh, Ten rounds, uh, one hundred fifty players. Uh, can't draft any other birth years. Two thousand fours only. Uh, some players have already been taken off of the draft board because they were selected to be on the U.S. national team development program, and they'll be the U seventeen team in uh, Plymouth, Michigan, uh, next season. Uh, their Team USA. Uh, USA players uh, to the best in, you know, considered the best in the uh, 2004 birth year. And then you have uh, t- USHL tenders, uh, players that were allowed to uh, sign with teams that had uh, wanted to commit roster spots to them next year as 16 year olds. Uh, there are constraints involved in the tender process. But the bottom line is if the team wants a player and a player wants to sign with the team, the team surrenders their first round pick or second round pick, they're allowed to tender up to two players. And in exchange, that player is committed to that team. Uh, no other team is able to draft them in the futures draft. And then, But in exchange, that 16-year-old that player that tenders must uh, appear in 55% of the, of the games, right? So uh, they're guaranteed spot on the roster. And so uh, the team has to be confident in them that they're, that they're able to be USHL players right away. For everyone else, there's the draft um, of phase one. And then uh, on Tuesday, we reset and when you phase two where we're drafting all of the junior eligible birth years, 2000s to 2003s, and they can draft 04s as well. Um, so if a player isn't selected in phase one, they can also be selected uh, the second day as well if they're an 04 birth year. Uh, but primarily the focus of the, of the phase two draft is replenishing the rosters after they've been depleted from you know, age outs and, and players leaving from college from the year before. So we are allowed to draft pretty much players from anywhere. Um, we're, we're different from most leagues in that where if you look at Canadian major junior, they're regionally based. And when they have their drafts every year, they're looking at, at drafting 16 year olds. They do some of those leagues like the Ontario league and, and the Quebec league and the Western hockey league have all adopted kind of some supplemental drafts in addition to what they do. Um, but they typically, when they're drafting as organizations, they're taking 16 year olds and they're, they are, uh, you know, they're confined to certain regions in the U S whereas in the USHL, we can go anywhere, uh, all over the globe, all over the U S all over Canada. Uh, the difference is when we draft a player, we have to have done our due diligence on, on the player and uh, make sure that he's going to come play for you because you can draft the best team with the most talent. Uh, some unbelievable players, but if they're committed to play elsewhere, they don't want to leave a certain situation. If they're in a tier two league in Canada or, or elsewhere and they don't come, then you're not, no one's going to be patting you on the back for drafting a player that didn't uh, 
put on the, uh, the orange and black and, and skate up and down the ice in, uh, in Ralston Arena. It's all about making sure that when you conduct your draft, uh, you have players that are going to actually be on your roster that year. Can you talk a little bit about what you and the rest of the scouting staff has done for this entire you know last 11 months to get to this point I mean how often do you go out and actually watch players live are you watching them on video are you how are players getting to you and how are you getting to players so the the short answer to that is yes um without getting into uh without getting into process too much we have uh scouts all over uh, all over the U.S. and Canada uh, we have a pretty good group of, of experienced guys that, that put in a lot of work. They watch a lot of games live. We do, we do supplement viewings with, with video. And, and really, it's, it's, it's not just about getting out and, and, and watching players uh, in a given game situation. It's about relationships. It's about uh, knowing, getting to know the players, getting to know the coaches. The coaches tend to know the players better than anyone. And so you have to make connections. And a lot of times it's about timing, you know, too. You don't want to yeah, a lot of you have to be judicious because there are you know 14 other teams out there that are competing for the same players in a lot of a lot of respects. So you don't want to maybe necessarily tip your hand too soon. But at the end of the day, we do a really good job um, of putting the priorities and, and the focus where it needs to be. And I give a lot of credit to uh, Coach Wilkie for that because he empowers us uh, to get out there and uh, beat the pavement and see as many players as we can. And and I think, you know, we're, we're organized and able to come together and have some meaningful discussions. And, and at the end of the day, you know, um, we feel pretty good about it. I mean, you look at a kid like Alex Campbell, who was selected as a, as a first-team USHL All-Star, um, I believe the first time since Philip Succi uh, that we had that uh, in, in Omaha. And, and, and Alex Campbell's a great example of, of process working where we identified him in another league and we watched him and, did the work and and then he came in and he adapted to uh, the speed, the physicality, the pace, and the structure of the Omaha Lancers very well, and went on to be one of the the, the most productive players uh, as you know in his first year here um, in the USHL. And that's the success story, right? And that's a that's a team success story. It's a lot of people were involved in it, and it uh, was uh, you know it was, it was great to see. And it's great to see when you get these players that 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 are able to put in the work, they have the talent, they have the ability, but they have the wherewithal. And that's the great thing about an Alex Campbell is, you know, he just brought a professional mindset from day one. He was a really, uh, I mean, you remember Nick, you got to know Alex a little bit. I mean, he just was a really easygoing um, young man, but he he understood when you had to put the work in and to be serious and, and get after it. And, uh, and he was a huge part of our team. And, uh, so I think there are a lot of players that can look to a guy like Alex Campbell and all the players that were on our, our team last year and, and, and look to that and say, you know, wow, they all kind of, they didn't all take the, the same road or the same process or path to get to Omaha. Uh, and that's what, what also makes, makes it unique. It's not just about the draft. We have the ability to, to bring in players to our tryout camps and, and a player that outplays a kid that we drafted might, might take a spot from him and be added to the roster and then have the opportunity to play for the Omaha Lancers. Whereas the other kid who was drafted, you know, if, if you're not good enough at the end of the day, hockey's still the business. We have to have a winning team. We have to put the best product on the ice. And you might think that one, you know, player A is going to be 
you know, successful and, and, and you, you draft him based on, on, on those beliefs. And then player B comes out and just outplays him and, and takes it away from him. And we've had examples of that in the past, like Brendan Furry is a great example coming in two years ago, never having been drafted in any league and uh, coming to Omaha as a, as an undrafted camp invitational player and playing his way, you know, leading the camp and scoring and playing his way onto the team and then being a 40 point guy as a rookie in the USHL, like, there are a lot of those stories. So it's really about process. It's about, you know, the, you know, the team being organized to, 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 to go to the various areas around the globe to find talent and then find the right players. It's not, you know, if you, it's not like NHL 20 um, EA sports where you just, you know, find all the nineties and stick them on, you know, four, four lines and fly around the ice and, and score a bunch of goals and win the Stanley cup. And, you know, you don't build teams like that. You know, you got to have your, you got to have your skill guys. You got to have your speed guys, but you also have to have your hard, physical, intense, smart, you know, capable uh, players to, to fill the right role. And so any, anytime you're, you're building a team, you're not necessarily looking for the most talented players. You're looking for the right players. And I think, you know, coach Wilkie has a great vision and knows, knows what he wants and, and knows what he expects from the staff. And we just do our, the best job we can to, to give him the information to make the informed decisions. And we go from there. You did a great job answering my next question before I even asked it. So I appreciate that. I was going to ask about, you know, there's a lot of players who don't get drafted, not only in the USHL, but the NHL that end up making it, you know, what, what you tell guys like that. And I think you just did a good job of explaining a guy like Brandon Ferry. A lot of guys could be down on themselves or not want to come into a tryout camp if they don't get drafted. When you call some players who you've been scouting the entire year, who you didn't draft, what is that conversation like? Man, great. <laughs> it's almost like you're reading my mind. So yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing, right? Because in our culture, we are conditioned to think about hockey and to think about things in certain ways. And so, you know, you're a hockey player. If, if you have a chance to play junior, it's all about getting drafted into a junior league because, you know, NHL players are drafted to the NHL and nobody is saying, gee, I sure hope that, uh, you know, I sure hope that I'm an undrafted free agent, you know, the, you know, to the NHL. They're, saying, they're hoping they're a first round pick and they have the dream of putting on the jersey and standing on the stage. And, and unfortunately, every year, 30 guy, or 31 guys get to do that. You know, that's it. That's, that's as many get to walk up on the stage. Now, other guys get drafted by the team, but we are conditioned to think there, you know, that, 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 that certain processes and pathways are the way to go. And so it is a challenge. Um, no one wants to be told they're, you know, they're not good enough. And when you aren't drafted, that's a way of, that's, that's it. That is a message received that, hey, you weren't good enough to be a draft pick in this draft. Um, and so that stings. It's disappointing and it's discouraging in some cases. I think a lot of times players don't really think about process as much as they should. Uh, they're focused in the here and now. Hey, it's the draft. I want to be drafted. I want to be drafted. You know, granted, um, if you didn't want to be drafted, we probably wouldn't want you on our hockey club. You know, so so good on you for being angry, upset, disappointed. However, but at some point, all right, get over it and now figure out. You know, what am, what comes next? What can I do? Um, the draft didn't happen for me. All right, what what's next? How else can I make it to the USHL? And um, it's funny, I'll get emails sometimes from players and they'll say, 
you know, Mr. Luduki, you know, I would really like you to consider me for the draft and, and all this and that. And, and I would love to be an Omaha Lancer. I, like, I think Omaha is a great organization and, you know, all that stuff. And look, we are obviously flattered anytime a, a player researches us and reaches out to us and wants to, you know, figure out how to be a part of this team. It's, it's, it's terrific. But by the same token, when the draft doesn't happen for that player, and then we, you know, we, we've looked into it and maybe we invite them to camp and then they don't come, then you say to yourself, well, do, you know, did you really want to be, did you really want to be a part of the, you know, the organization that badly? You know, you wanted us to draft you. We didn't draft you. Now we offered you an opportunity to come and try and fight to, for a spot on our team and you don't take it. Um, so there are some mixed signals in there. And what I, what I challenge players to do is think seriously about what you want to do. You have to have plan B and C. If plan A is your only plan, i.e., I think I'm good enough to be drafted and I should be drafted. Well, if plan A doesn't work, what's your plan B? Um, sometimes players will say, well, thanks for inviting me. Um, I'm just going to work with my skills coach and try to get better. Hey, great. More power to you. But by doing that, you're guaranteeing that one person is going to see your progress, your skills coach or whoever you're working with. Um, why wouldn't you take advantage of a, of an opportunity that's afforded you? And granted different, different players, different families, they're in different situations. And I would say, you know, sometimes if you're on the younger end of the spectrum, it may, maybe makes more sense to, to focus on your skills development or maybe your, your, your off-ice strength and conditioning. Whatever works for you as a player in a family, that's, that's a, an individual decision. But if you're, if you're a player that has a chance to play junior hockey and you aren't drafted, if you're thinking that, hey, this is the end of the line, my path to the USHL is closed, you're mistaken. Uh, there are plenty of ways you can make it. Brendan Furry is, is but one example. Um, but you have to stick with it and you have to show some commitment and some, you know, and, and, and that's a chance for you to um, succeed. I, I tell people sometimes when they're, you know, about the, about the USHL futures draft, especially it can be a blessing and a curse because yeah, you get drafted, but then there's a chance you can get cut. If you don't make the team and you don't progress and you don't develop, you know, the USHL has to, you know, the teams have to make decisions on players based on definitive timelines. If they're, drafted in in the futures draft and they're in the system as a prospect and so um the double-edged sword is that if you could be drafted but if you're not good enough to make the team you could find yourself being released you know and and, and that's not fun either so the benefit to not being drafted is you get to get to develop at your own pace uh you get to work on your own um your own skills and, and, and come up with your own plan. And you don't have a, you don't have a ticking clock and, you know, have to be looking over your shoulder to say, you know, Hey, am I good enough to be able to be kept by the organization and continue to progress? If I don't make the team at 17, am I good enough to stay on their affiliate lists? And if I'm not, then I'm released. And if I am, then, you know, it's, it, it, it's a process. So in some regards, it's better for the, for the late bloomers to be drafted at 18 and 19 years old, because then they're ready to come in the league and be impact guys right away versus drafted younger. It's a longer process. You have to pay your dues and play well at the lower levels and work your way up. Shifting gears. Uh, we kind of talked about talent evaluation. You know, you spent time covering the Boston Bruins. They've really done a good job at uh, grooming homegrown talent. So on a, NHL level, what is the importance of the draft and being able to evaluate talent? Well, I mean, it's, it's so important now. I mean, especially with the uh, salary cap, right? Um, back before 2000, 
five, uh, NHL teams that didn't draft well had a mulligan. They could just, you know, throw a lot of money at, at the more veteran free agent players, uh, or they could trade away draft mistakes and things like that. And they weren't constrained financially in terms of, you know, what, how much the player was making and things like that. They could, you know, if you wanted to, you could, you were, and your owner was willing to spend the money, you could sign, you know, five really high priced free agents on the day one of free agency and, and call it a day. Now the system was different in that back then those players were tended to be older and they were on the wrong side of their, you know, they were on the wrong side of 30. And so you weren't getting the prime years of their production. Um, but drafting itself, I mean, if you, if you were terrible at drafting, but you had deep pockets, you could, you, know, you could turn some of that, mitigate some of that by signing veteran free agents to offset the influx of young talent or good talent that you'd be getting through the draft process. Now, if you were a, if you didn't have deep pockets as a team and you drafted poorly, you were pretty much toast. Um, you know, there there wasn't much hope for you. You're going to be at the at the bottom of the in the cellar uh, cellar dweller, so to speak. But the thing with um, the salary cap means that, that, that the top players on teams and team salary structures now have become very top heavy with their stars earning the most money. And so teams must have younger talent on lower cost entry level deals to offset those huge, um, you know, salary cap hits they have at the top of their roster. It's essential. So drafting has become essential. Like teams cannot survive and remain competitive if they don't have an, a continuous um, rotation of younger talent that can come in and be impact players and help their the, the, the teams win games at lower salaries because the big cap space is being taken up with their star players and then as those young players develop you know they're gonna they're gonna earn bigger contracts and guys are gonna have to be moved out and you see that if you watch the way roster building is in, in the NHL it's it's uh, it's you know, it's gone that way where younger players, younger and younger players are getting bigger and bigger contracts on their second deals um, because that's just kind of how the market is kind of shifting and shaping up. And so, so yeah, you have to be able to draft well. And, you know, the good news is if you're a team that doesn't necessarily have a lot of early draft picks or um, maybe you, you haven't hit on some of your, your higher end draft picks, if you're, if you're good about going out and maybe, Scout in the college ranks, you can get some pretty good impact college free agents that are undrafted if you can convince them to sign with you, and that can kind of offset. I mean, you look at a guy like Tory Krug and what he's done for the Boston Bruins, never drafted, uh, signed as a as an undrafted free agent in 2012, and now one of the best defensemen in the league. Don't know whether they're going to be able to retain him at the salary it's going to take, but he's been a heck of a player, and he's been way better than so many players that were drafted in the years that he was eligible and he was completely passed over. So the Bruins are one of several teams that have done a really nice job. I think of finding some, finding some free agents that have been really impactful and gone on. And Carson Coleman's another example, you know, get those guys that if, if you don't have the draft picks, you can offset it. If you're, if you do some shrewd uh, college free agent signings, they don't all go on to be successful and be NHLers, but when you can get production out of them, I think probably the one of the most famous college free agent signings of all time was Adam Oates. RPI won the national championship in 1985, signed with the Red Wings, and went on to a Hall of Fame career. That's a guy that was never drafted. And, you know, he was. You know, I think his best year was 142 points one year. Um, so, you know, pretty good player. 
uh, one of the great uh, assists, you know, playmaking uh, centers of all time, yet was never drafted. So those guys are out there, and it's just like the USHL, right? If you're not drafted, okay, doesn't mean your dream's over. It just means you have to work a little harder and maybe find it find a different path. So drafting is essential in the NHL. And that's why I think you're seeing more and more teams investing the, the resources in terms of robust scouting staffs and, and, and a big budget to be able to get out and see those players because they know uh, that if they're going to remain competitive, they got to have those young guys, impact guys on the entry level deals so that they can stay uh, salary cap compliant. So honest question here in talent evaluating and drafting, how much is it, actually evaluating the talent how much of it is developing that player and how much of it is luck because i think there's a combination of those three things that that really come involved in not only the nhl but the ushl too yeah no you said it's a venn diagram right um evaluation is just a part of it because you have to remember like when we're evaluating players for the futures draft they're 15 years old Sometimes we were looking at them a year earlier when they were 14 to 15. So in their futures draft year, they're 15 to 16. They're turning 16 during the season that we draft them. So if you think back to how old you were, you know, and how you were physically at 15 and 16 and to where you were at 18, 19, 20 years old, it's like a world of difference in terms of your, your size, your strength, your maturity, the experience, the life experiences you had. And certainly, you know, if you're playing hockey all through that, those, those game and hockey developmental experiences you're going to get. So it's the same thing with the NHL. They're, they're looking at drafting guys at 17 to 18, but the average, you know, the average age of the NHL players in their mid twenties. So, I mean, there's a lot of, lot of time there to, to, to try to figure it out. And so that's why projecting it's so difficult. So if you're just, you know, if you're just focusing on the talent, um, that's a, that's a piece of it. And obviously not everyone comes with the same level of talent, right? So some, you said it at the beginning, you know, Connor McDavid's pretty evident. Like everyone knew he was going to be a generational player pretty early on, but to everyone else, like once you get past that, the teams that are the most successful are the ones that find ways to figure out um, innovative methods that they can do their homework in more detail, right? And so, you know, everyone to a degree has the ability to to evaluate players, but you know, to be able to go the extra mile. Uh, to figure out how to make, it's really about making the most informed decisions, right? And so for an NHL team, you know, in USHL, we want to make sure that they're going to come, right? But if for an NHL team, yeah, they're probably going to come if you draft them. By and large, it's a different challenge for NHL teams. Um, they have to try to figure out, okay, is this guy actually going to be able to, you know, reach this level at an age where we have no idea really, what, you know, what he's going to look like. Uh, and that's that's the hard part because they're potentially investing in a player either they drafted 18. Um, you know, look at Patrice Bergeron, you know, he, he was drafted at, eight, at 17. He wasn't even 18 when the NHL draft happened. He turned 18 a month later, right? So he was drafted at 17, signed with him at 18, made the team at 18. And he's been on the team ever since. And he's about to turn 35, you know, and that's all, that's all he's ever known. And if they had had a crystal ball to know that he, Patrice Bergeron was going to be what he was going to be, there's no way he would have, they would have waited till the 45th pick to draft him. You know, they would have taken him, you know, 
well, heck, he, if anyone knew what he was going to be, he would have been one of the first picks off the board in that great 2003 draft, right? And so that's the hard part. That's where the art of the draft comes in. There's a science to it, and then there's also an art. And, uh, and yeah, there's just a lot of luck is, luck is a big thing too. Like there, there are players uh, that, you know, you, you go back to George Palawa and, and with the Calgary Flames, who was a, a, a tremendous prospect, high, Minnesota high school student, was drafted in the first round, and I think it was the 85, and I uh, was killed in a car accident a few months later. And so uh, Len Bias for the Boston Celtics, I know it's basketball, but, you know, second overall pick in the NBA draft was supposed to be the franchise, future franchise player to take the mantle from Larry Bird, you know, had a drug overdose and died, you know, the next day. And, never played a single game in the NBA like you're right luck's a big part of it that's the bad luck right but then there's good luck too you get a kid like Johnny Goudreau who I remember in 2011 when the Flames took him in the fourth round people were going are you crazy like he's like 130 pounds 140 pounds like what are you doing Flames and all these years later pretty good move because they believed that he was going to be able to you know whatever his his size and his weight uh, was at the time he was so exceptional a talent and he was so driven a kid they just felt like he was going to figure it out. Now, I mean, if you went back to 2011, Goudreau would be a first-round pick. You know, like in hindsight, fourth round seems stupid based on the player he's developed into. But having been there in 2011 in Minneapolis or St. Paul uh, when he was, he was drafted in 2011 at the XL Energy Center, I remember the conversations. People were like, oh, Goudreau in the fourth round, what are they thinking, you know? And so, so in you know, they, you're right. Um, luck play, plays into it. And sometimes – a scout's intuition, the gut feel, and, and, and that's through years of experience and doing what they're doing. We'll look at a player and say, yeah, you know what? He might, he might be this now, but it's really not about what he is now. It's about what we think he's going to be. And uh, it's the same thing in the USHL. Like we're looking at 16 year olds. Yeah. We're not, we're not as, you know, it's great to, 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 to look at what they are now, but we're also have to really think about what are they going to be when they're 18, 19 years old, and hopefully playing for our hockey team and bringing the heat is on uh, streaming down from the, from the rafters when they light the back of the lamp and, and all of that. Right. And that's, that's really what it's about. So it's a great way to put it, Nick. And I, I kind of rambled on there, but hopefully it was uh, illuminating and enlightening for those listening. Definitely. So kind of speaking about, player development, stuff like that. What advice do you give to kids that are, you know, playing squirts, peewees, bantams that dream of playing tier one junior hockey and ultimately making it to the NHL? Okay. First part is process. Make it your process and focus on you and what you're doing. We tend to look around at what other people are doing and we worry about, well, you know, Johnny Humpty Frats over there, you know, he's got a, you know, he's on a, he's on a top team. He's on a triple A team. I'm a better player than him. I'm only double A. You know, that's not fair. Okay. Well, you're wasting your time. Um, if you want to be on a triple A team, figure out what you need to do, put in the work, get better and go get that, go make that happen. You know, we see it with, with players and in, in, in commitments, all that guy's committed and I'm not, but I think I'm better. And it's not productive to be looking at what everyone else is doing and, and, and focusing on the fact that you don't feel like you've been given the same opportunity or that you're better. You have to, you know, the hardest thing for a player is to, to come to grips with the fact that you, you are not going to be in control of everything. And, you know, life is typically not going to unfold the way you want. You can want something doesn't mean you're going to achieve it. But if you uh, dedicate yourself and commit yourself to wanting to be a player at a high level, then you can focus on your process 
and what you do with your coaches, your team, your teammates, and be the best you can. And it's a cliche to say, get better every day, but it's absolutely true. Like the day that I walk into the, to the building thinking I've learned everything and, and that there's nothing else to know, I need to turn around, you know, turn in my keys and walk out, you know, uh, with all my stuff because I'm not, I'm not bringing any value to the organization. You know, we always talk about organizations have to be learning organizations and you have to, you know, learn from your mistakes and, and, and commit to getting better and continuing to improve. And that's certainly been the case as we've, as we've gone through now, this is my going to be my fourth iteration of drafting in the, in the Omaha Lancers and, and things are much better, you know, than they were the first year, but look, we haven't figured it all out. We have to continue to get better. Well, it's the same for players you have to continue to commit to constantly learning and taking the inputs and gaining from the experiences. And the only way you can do that is by just focusing on you and worrying about what you can control and what you can do uh, to, to get and achieve the goals. And, and look, let's face it, life isn't fair. There are some guys that, you know, they're going to, you know, they're, they're going to be immensely talented and naturally gifted much more so than you. And they're not going to have to put in as much work and they can just kind of show up and they'll be good. And the vast majority of us, we don't, we don't have the benefit. I remember a guy named, named Matt in my ROTC unit, man, he, he, we would have a, we would have a physical fitness test and I would work so hard if we'd have two a year and I'd work so hard to, to, to prepare for that. And he wouldn't. And uh, the night before the, the, the PFT, the, the physical fitness test, he would be out, you know, in, indulging in libations or whatever. And he would, he would walk in and he would score a max score like nothing the next day. And meanwhile, I had been, you know, taking care of myself and working hard and training hard for it. And I would, you know, I, I had trouble maxing it out. You know, I would come close, but I could never quite get that. I, I achieved that later. But, you know, those guys really you know, it can be frustrating when you're around those guys because it comes so easy to them. But in the end, the work is its own reward and the harder process. You know, I'm a big believer in, you know, the best process is the, or the best path is the hardest earned. And sometimes, you know, we have a, we have a tendency to want to want to ha have the easy way, you know, um, I'll get, I'll get asked by parents, well, what is my, you know, what chance does my son have of making your team? Well, it's irrelevant. Like, do you want to be on this team? You know, is this a team you're interested in? You're talking to me. So you might, you must be interested. Come and try and find out. Like I, I shouldn't be having to tell you what his chances are of making the team. You, he, if you want to be on this team, come and, and, and put in the work and try to make it and prove it. Right. And so, um, like I said, people just, they, they spend far more time and energy worrying about other factors and other influences and other circumstances that are beyond their control. And if they just commit to themselves and they commit to the game and they commit to excellence, um, you know, one thing that Coach Wilkie talks about, and I've heard him say um, on multiple occasions when he talks to players is, he says, you never get a you know, second chance to make a first impression on a scout. Um, so he's telling them, go out and work your hardest, move your feet. Don't take it. Don't take a shift off. Don't take a day off. You might not feel great that day, but really commit yourself to trying to be the best because you never know if a scout in there is watching you for the first time and the only time he ever may watch you. And if you lay an egg and you're not even, um, you know, working to even, a, a, you know, just a fraction of your ability, uh, that might be the only time he ever sees you. And that might be the only impression you ever make. And so as human beings, it's hard because some days are better than others. Some days we get out of bed, we feel great. We can't wait to get to the rink. Um, and we, our energy just kind of feeds off of itself and we have great days. Other days, 
you know, maybe we, maybe we blocked a shot the night before and we're hurting, we're sore and we got run into the boards and, and our back isn't feeling quite right. The ten, natural tendency is, eh, I'm just not feeling it. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to dial it down and, 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 you know, take it easy today. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's hard. It's human nature to want to do things like that, but you never know who's watching you. And you should just always assume that a bunch of people that could influence your future positively are in there watching you and uh, never pass up a chance to, to show them who you really are. Because if they catch you on the wrong day, you might have a, you know, the wrong impression about you. You kind of spoke about overcoming obstacles a little bit there. Athletes often find themselves having to jump over a hurdle at some point in their life, mental, physical, something, maybe a short period, an extended period. You spent years in the military. I'm sure you faced many obstacles along the way. How have you overcome obstacles in your career to make yourself not only a better person, but a professional as well? I think, yeah, really. It's about failing. You have to be, you, you can't be afraid of failure. You have to be okay with making a bad decision. The key thing is learning, you know, learning from the experiences you get. And so you, you make mistakes, uh, you do the wrong thing, you exercise some poor judgment. Maybe you don't, like if you're a player, maybe you don't make the right decision in a situation and it costs your team a goal or, you know, what have you. Um, you have to own it. You have to be accountable to yourself and you have to be accountable to your team or the organization you're with and uh, understand what happened and understand what you could have done differently and then just dedicate yourself to uh, trying to make the better decision the next time or learning from that specific experience. And if you make a specific mistake, don't repeat it, right? Um, don't keep making the mistakes. And it's hard sometimes. Again, we're human beings and, you know, sometimes you get, you get passionate or maybe you, you do something or say something, say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. And, but at the end of the day, to overcome those obstacles, you have to have a, you have to have a sense of accountability. Uh, and I was, you know, you asked me about, you know, players and, and, and what can they do to, you know, what can they do to be successful? And, and one thing that's very important to me, and I think to any, any player that's on a team or deals with a coach is, is the T word. And I don't mean teamwork. Uh, teamwork is important, but the T word that I'm referring to between an individual player and a coach is trust. Players really, if they want to be successful at any level, they have to work and dedicate themselves to establishing a firm basis of trust between themselves and the coach. Because if the coach trusts them as a player, then that's really the keys to the kingdom because the player is going to be on the ice in a tight game, you know, one goal up, trying to preserve a lead, one goal down, trying to tie the game and potentially come from behind and win. If you're a player, you want to be on the ice in that situation all the time. You don't want to be the guy sitting watching from the bench. You want to be out there influencing the game. The only way that happens is if the coach trusts you and believes that you're going to be a difference maker. At some point when you get to the elite levels, you're not just rotating your bench anymore and putting everyone out there to play. You know, hockey's a business and you play to win. And the coaches are going to have their guys that, that they trust and they believe can deliver the goods to achieve the two points on a given night. So if you're a player, you've got to, you know, trust is everything. And it's not just on the ice, it's off the ice. It's being to, being to work on time, being to work early. You know, I like, it's not an accident. I go around, I'm in, I'm in the building all the time. I see who comes, who shows up early. I see who's in the weight room all the time when no one's really looking. 
Uh, I see who's putting in the extra work. I see who's there focused on details who come, they come in and they prepare professionally. They're stretching, they're taking care of their bodies. Uh, they're doing their routines that they know will make them successful. Now, some guys routines are a little strange, but it's their routine. And if they care about their performance, they're going to stick to their routine because that's a sign of success. And that all feeds back into trust. And um, it's not just for players too. It's um, I think parents have a big, a big role to play in the advancement of, uh, of their kids. And, and, and while the vast majority of parents are pretty supportive, there are certain things parents can do that can really get, uh, you know, kind of gum up the works and inadvertently maybe um, cost their, cost their player an opportunity and the parent isn't even thinking about that. Well, I appreciate all the advice you've given to youth athletes and knowledge you've given to everyone about the draft and evaluating talent and stuff like that. I wanted to finish off kind of a just fun question for you. Who is your favorite player of all time and why? Oh, wow. Uh, for those, I guess, that have, you know, follow me on social media, not hard. Um, so, I, yeah, I was a, I always liked, I was a goalie and I always liked goalies. And for me, I had kind of this irrational love for a player named Mike Liute uh, growing up. Um, ironically, I was a diehard Boston Bruins fan and Mike Liute never played for the Bruins. Uh, he was uh, originally in the World Hockey Association with the Cincinnati uh, Stingers, and then he uh, jumped to the NHL with the St. Louis Blues uh, when the WHA folded. And uh, he had this unreal mask; it was like killer. And like anyone that you know, Google Mike Liute St. Louis Blues, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's that old school fiberglass on the face mask, and really intimidating. And I think that was probably the thing that drew me to him when I was a seven, eight years old. And a uh, big guy moved pretty well. Like back then in the NHL, a lot of the goalies weren't big. They were smaller, quick, you know, agile little guys. And Liute was a big guy. Ken Dryden was, was a bigger goaltender for that, for the age, but they, but it wasn't like it is now where NHL teams seem to want guys that are six, three or, or, or taller in the nets. So hockey was different back then. And Liute was the rare big guy. And and he was pretty successful. I mean, it was a different, it was a different game back in the eighties. Uh, it was high, high scoring goalies weren't as talented and athletic. I think that's why you had, I don't think you'll ever see the, the offense again that you saw in the eighties when Wayne Gretzky was putting up 215 points for the, in a single season with the, with the Edmonton Oilers. You know, just not going to see that ever again because the goalies are too good. Uh, they're too athletic and the, the evolution of the position has changed. But for me, Mike Liu was the guy, he was traded to Hartford and, I remember getting a chance to meet him and he was just, uh, just terrific, really, really kind, um, cordial. And that's a great thing about hockey players. You know, they treat the fans, they understand for the most part, they understand you know, why the, you know, why they're there and the fans and they're really good. And, you know, hockey players that have a chance to be nice to a kid can really, uh, formulate, help formulate that kid's outlook on the game and the sport for the rest of their lives. And guys like Mike Liute, I looked up to because I watched him play, but being the nicest guy off the ice and taking the time to shake my hand and ask me about, you know, myself and where I was from and what I was doing, like that stuff went a long way. And it's kind of cool because he's now a player agent. I have, you know, interactions with him on occasion and we've talked about that over the years, you know, Hey, you were my idol. He kind of laughs and says, Oh, it's a good thing. You weren't a backup goalie trying to, uh, you know, beat me out for a spot on the, on the teams. Cause I wasn't as, you know, wasn't as nice uh, to those guys, but uh, you know, it's a good, it's a good thing. It's, it reminds me of how good the game is and how pure it is. It's bigger than any of us. Um, it was here before we were, and it's going to be here after we're gone. 
And at the end of the day, one of the things that I respect about Coach Wilkie is he talks about doing things right, you know, play the right way, act the right way, be a professional. Um, all those things, they add up. And so if I can leave the kids with any, you know, final bit of advice and the parents too, um, because the parents are instrumental. I mean, they're your children. You, you love them. and You want what's best for them. And, you know, and it's, it's do things the right way. Uh, do what you say you're going to do. Uh, be committed. Uh, commit yourself to the game. There are going to be sacrifices you have to make if you're going to play hockey at a high level. Uh, at some point, you, you give up your chance to be just a regular kid. Uh, you give up your chance to be a regular family. But if it's something you really want, it, want um, it's attainable, it's achievable, and uh, the rewards are immeasurable for those that uh, have the wherewithal to pursue it. Um, but do it the right way. Um, be, a good, be a good person, be a good player, be a good teammate. Uh, you know, avoid the, the selfish nature and things of, of that things that aren't important. You know, the whole, um, Hey, you know, I scored two goals. I was, I, therefore I was the best player in the game. Well, you could be the worst player in the game and scored two goals because you didn't back check and you didn't play the right way. And you, you know, maybe the nature of those two goals were scored by cheating, you know, cheating the game and not doing things the right way. So I always say, to, to folks, don't focus so much on the stats. It's not about the statistics. I can look at stats. They don't mean anything because if I haven't seen every single goal, I don't understand the context of, of who you scored those goals against, how you scored them. What I care about is when I'm watching you in any given situation, you know, are you playing hard? Are you competing? Are you moving your feet? You know, are you, you know, making yourself available at the right time? Are you taking the right routes? Are you in support? Um, and it's hard, you know, a lot of times at the younger ages, they don't know these things. Kids have to be taught, but I think the onus needs to be on coaches for them to do that, to empower their players, try to build structure in the game so that they're still allowed to create and be creative and, and learn the game and have fun. But at the same time, learn how to play responsibly because as they go up in levels, you know, the coaches are just going to expect more and more that they know how to play hockey. And uh, you don't want to be, you don't want to be tagged with the, with the label of a pond hockey player or a hockey school player when you get to junior hockey, because at the end of the day, the hockey players, you know, are the ones that are going to stay in the lineup because not everyone can score in every single game typically. So when you're not scoring, what are you doing to help the team? And uh, that's what matters the most to coaches because um, if the scoring dries up, you got to bring something else to the table. You got to be good defensively or be able to make plays and do the little things to help your team win, even if you're not contributing on the score sheet. And uh, that's ultimately going to decide whether a kid is, is a, a member of the team that's, that's counted on and has earned the trust of the coaches or whether you know, he gets moved on or, or, you know, doesn't work out. And so that's it. Uh, I really appreciate the time, Nick. It's been, uh, it's been fun. Yes. Thank you. And I think that advice of teamwork, doing things the right way, commitment really translates to any sport. So certainly I appreciate your time and thanks for coming on.